better or worse, the relationship between science, film, and media has long been intertwined. We're here to dissect that relationship, turning it inside out for all to see. And throughout the years, one truth has revealed itself. You don't need good science to make a good movie. But it sure makes it better. Hi everyone and welcome to the Real Science Cast, the podcast where three highly qualified professionals pick a movie and then pick about the science. My name is Kenan. <laughs> My name is Sean Crosser. <laughs> uh, and I am Michael Pace. That was all very good, boys. I like the little variation on the on the little diddly that that aliens listen to yeah you think that's if that's man if they play that what do you think their top 40 station is like moby (laughs) just moby Moby? all all the way down this is all moby just moby just moby and philip glass that's all it is just playing like like Mm -hmm. over and over right it's just they've got moby chained to a chair and he's playing chopsticks That sounds like a cool radio station. Uh, So as you guys can tell, this is a podcast where we watch movies and we talk about the science in those movies. Uh, And we we oft discussed whether there's good science in it or bad science in it or just okay science in it. And we watched it. Sean, can you tell us what, can you tell the listeners what we watched this week? So this year we watched the 1977 classic film. This year. This year. This year. Did I say this year? We took the entire (laughs) year to watch the film. All right, full disclosure to the audience, <laughs> I'm very tired. <laughs> my cat threw up on my bed last night. It was not fun. It was this. Oh, I've poor had Sean. three beers, so you're going to get equal effort out of me. So I, just, I can't anymore. I've had one I seltzer just, water. <laughs> I mislabeled my virus preps today. Oh, it's just a no. lot, of, uh, lot of stuff I got to do. So, so anyways, this year we watched. <laughs> um, wait, no, no, no. Fool me, fool me twice. <laughs> This week, we watched Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Mm -hmm. a 1977 classic film. By Steven Spielberg. By Steven Spielberg, starring Richard Richard. Dreyfuss. Nice, yeah, yeah, yeah. And others. Francois Truffaut as uh, Claude Lacombe, the French government scientist. Um, Melinda Melinda Dillon's in there. Mm -hmm. Bob Balaban's in there. Who's the, uh, he's the English-French interpreter. Yeah, you recognize, you recognize Bob Balaban. Yeah, Terry right? Gar's in there too. Mm-hmm. Can, oh shit! Do you take like she's in hmm? Young Frankenstein. Yeah. Okay. I knew well, I. Can we take a brief her. moment to recognize the most talented actor in this film? Bob and Balaban? that is the the child actor who plays Barry. <laughs> oh my fucking god! He yeah, was dude. amazing. I <laughs> wanted to punch <laughs> Barry the whole time. <laughs> yeah, Barry was kind of annoying. God, um, but yeah, we watched this movie this week, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, sometimes we talk about movies with science and rate it. Sometimes we talk about movies that have no science in it. And um, spoiler mm-hmm. alert: this might be one of those weeks. So. Yeah, <laughs> I I don't want to I don't want to come off as like drastic here, but if we if we watch another movie about space or about aliens in the next three months, I'm gonna jump off a goddamn bridge. I'm glad you were very. Restrained. I'll push you. Yeah, yeah for I sure. I just want to be very clear with uh, with my intent behind my words mm-hmm. i agree with that intent and those words um thank you pace you're welcome i try to be a supportive friend 
And before we we get into the actual uh, science and content Mm -hmm. of this episode, we need to know what our disclaimers are. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Uh, And those disclaimers are that we are three highly intelligent scientists Mm -hmm. who will sometimes use more complicated lexicon and, and vernacular than the layman might be familiar with. But that's okay, because we do a good job of taking the complicated things and, and making it and, and making it so it goes, so it digests well, so that your probiotics just just get it really good. And then mm-hmm. once, you, once they get it really good, you're gonna shit out the best understanding of science that you could ever, ever want. Uh, and we're going to help you with that. That's right. That's interesting. Are we going to like, um, you know, bloviate profanities at the plebeians <laughs> listening to the show, Pace? Or? <laughs> that's exactly think, what we're going to do. I think you're missing the important part of what Pace is saying here. And that's that uh, we, the three science boys and our uh, beautiful listening audience are together going to craft wisdom poop together. Yes. Um, Gross. Yes. A good revealing the gigantic knowledge turd. Mm-hmm. Guys, my acid isn't kicking in yet, so it's probably gonna it sounds a little weird the stuff you're saying. I know we drank oh. it all together, but mm-hmm. I had a late lunch. So Yeah, we drank our acid together. Get get in here and and, ta- <laughs> and have a big smart dump with us. That's exactly what's gonna happen. Okay. Yeah. This is uh Yeah, this is you know what? Those are great pace. Those are great disclaimers. <laughs> Thank good. you. Put yeah. the kids Somehow to bed. they get worse every time. I yeah, don't know why. They, I, you know, I thought that was impossible, but you have proved <laughs> us wrong. One of these days, it's you're going to surprise us and speak like a uh, speak like a cogent, coherent human being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, if we do this show before like like before seven p.m. in the evening, then that might happen. But that's fair. As long as we're post seven p.m. My favorite part about this week's disclaimers is that we were actually able to uh, talk down to our audience um, like the, you know, that's my favorite part about this. Not Mm -hmm. only was it confusing, but we also got to sort of establish, you know, how uppity we were. That's true. We are pretty fucking uppity. I feel like people like that. Yeah, they do. People love being talked down to. Yeah, I I Laymen love being called laymen. (laughs) Yeah. Fuck. They fucking they fucking eat that shit up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who's who? Uh, who are my dirty piggies? That's that's it's me. you, the listeners. <laughs> oh wow, jeez! Welcome to fucking real science cast, Dick's Last Resort episode. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it's some somebody listening to this podcast was like, mm, okay, they were. they were like, yeah, they're right. into it. They're into okay. it. Okay, all right, enough enough nonsense, guys. Let's do it. Let's do right, the summary of this movie. I need you to know that I've already rolled. Pace doesn't have to roll. I've already rolled, and I'm holding in my hand the results of this. What? Oh. So, okay. Here comes so mine. So, Sean, it's it's your turn. All right, Cannon. Turn your phone around. A seven. Oh no, I got a twelve. Yeah. Suck All right, it. Sean Crossan. Let's hear this great plot synopsis. Yeah, you better you better chew up this plot and get ready to poop out some wisdom for our oh listeners, my bud. God. Fucking strap in, strap in, listeners. <laughs> make it, hey, do us all a favor and make it as short as possible. Oh, dude, don't you worry. Nothing happens in this movie. So. <laughs> That's true. All right. What off the to fu- a good How start. does this fucking movie start? Hold <laughs> You're on. You're off to a great start. Okay. You're crushing it. So the movie begins in the desert. 
where one of the main characters, French scientist Claude Lacombe, right? Yeah. He and his interpreter, David Lawhon, um, along with a bunch of other government researchers, find a flight, uh, Flight 19, which is a missing plane from World War II that apparently went missing in the Bermuda Triangle. And it's now mm-hmm. showed up in the 70s in the middle of a desert. Um, so they're there investigating it because I guess they're trying to figure out why that happened. Mm-hmm. The next scene, we are in, I believe her name's Jillian, Jillian's house. Uh, and she's in the middle of nowhere in Indiana. She sort of lives like, you know, on a farm area in this big house. And her son, Barry, who I believe is around like toddler three age, wakes up in the middle of the night to all of the toys in his room just suddenly coming to life and start doing stuff. Which, like, objectively is the scariest moment in the fucking film. Oh, it definitely was. Like, it's also so scary that all of these toys are making a shit ton of noise and Jillian just sleeps through it. Like, did she just take a bunch of Ambien before bed or something? Like, I I I don't know. Also, Barry sits up out of bed and he has this terrifying like symbol crashing monkey that's in his room mm. that immediately just starts playing and he sits up and he's like ha ha ha, ha this is fun yeah, this is great he, he's got that <laughs> real like creepy smile like you're like oh this kid is about to get fucking yeah, 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 yeah. For this sure. kid's gonna be like, on the news in 10 years yeah exactly so he wakes up he like goes downstairs finds that the refrigerator's open and food's everywhere and he goes outside and sees some bright lights and is running around towards the lights, just going like, ha 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 ha, like little child's laughter stuff. <laughs> and Jillian wakes up and sees him running away and is calling for him and ends up chasing him down. So then we go to another scene where we have uh, Richard Dreyfus. What's his character's name? I believe it's uh, Roy. Roy. Yes. Roy Neary. Roy. Yep. Um, there is a large, he is at home with his family and then all of a sudden he gets a phone call and the power goes out and it's his boss from work saying there's a massive power outage in Indiana and he needs to come into work because he works for the power company. So they send him in and then send him off to investigate some of the power outages. And while he's driving to investigate the power outages, a UFO flies over his car. Um, it starts turning off his car engine turns off his flashlight the railroad signals start going off a lot of weird electronical things are happening um and the ufo shines a bright light on him and it actually burns his face with the light so he's got his head out the window of the car looking up and his face gets singed and so those are the first three scenes in the movie and really what they're setting up is that at different locations weird events are happening that people have don't like are linking to maybe being a UFO. Right. Um, it's not known yet, of course, but that's what it looks like. So for the rest of the movie, um, while actually, sorry, one more important thing about Roy's scene, when the UFO hovers over him, it then flies away and Roy starts his car up and starts taking after the UFO to try and catch it. And while he's doing this, he almost runs over Barry, who has run into the middle of the street. Luckily, Jillian gets him out of the way, but that's how these two first meet, and um, then the aliens leave them. Right. So after this sighting, the movie sort of has two different simultaneous plots going on at the same time. Um, One of them is from the perspective of the two scientists. There's the French scientist and his interpreter. 
they are investigating these strange happenings. And there is also Roy and Jillian uh, who have now seen an alien ship and have strange behaviors arising because of their alien sighting. Um, So there are scenes in the movie where Roy and Jillian like go meet on this mountaintop where the aliens used to be and they're trying to see them again because they're sort of enthralled by the aliens. And of course, other people don't believe them. Um, the scientists are investigating just like strange events around the world where they go to India and there's just a group of people sitting down singing the same five tones over and over. And they're asking them, where did you hear these tones? And the people respond from the sky. So the scientists are piecing together that the aliens might be trying to communicate with this musical tone and Roy and Jillian are just trying to see the aliens again. Um, and meanwhile, as they are trying to find the aliens and as they're like becoming enthralled with this, they both keep seeing images in their mind of what eventually ends up being a mountain. And I believe it's called Devil's Tower in Wyoming. That is correct, sir. Yeah. So we later figured that out. So they have, because of their alien encounter, have essentially been telepathically driven to seek out this imagery so they both sort of start roy really starts kind of losing control of his daily life and is just like hell-bent on depicting a model of this location that the aliens have burned into his brain Mm. Um, but as this is happening so the scientists are making progress sort of finding out like okay we think they're aliens they're trying to send us a message and they want to meet up uh Jillian is with Barry and the aliens actually come to Jillian's house and essentially start messing with the electronics and shining bright lights inside and Barry runs outside and they abduct him. So Jillian is looking for her lost three-year-old and Roy drives his family away because he is constantly just wrecking their house and trying to build a like dirt model of this giant monolith that he's seeing in his head. Um, Hey, it happens, you know. It does, and he successfully builds it. So that that part that I just described is probably like an hour of the movie. Um, <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> somehow. Yeah. yeah. Somehow. But so basically where this all confluences at the end is um, Roy's family leaves him. He builds the model of the monolith and realizes like, okay, this is something that I'm supposed to be looking for. And he sees a news story where the government has evacuated... Um, devil's tower in wyoming claiming that there has been a nerve gas leak and that everyone has to like vacate or they will die so the government is trying to clear civilians out of this area and roy sees the news story and realizes like that's the monolith i've been seeing in my brain i have to go there yeah so he's starts to suspect that Uh, And rightfully so that the government has actually made up this nerve gas lie in order to get people away from this alien meeting. Well, that's the least believable thing in here that the government would lie to us. (laughs) Oh, Benghazi. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, but like, what was the actual? Never mind. We can't get into that right now. No, no, no. We're not doing government conspiracies. No, no. Keep going. No, we're not. Yeah, you're right. We're not going to talk about Benghazi on this podcast. (laughs) So basically, um, separate from each other, Roy is now without his family. They have like gone to his wife's sister's house because they're like, we can't handle your fucking craziness, Roy. Um, so Roy and Jillian 
both separately are like enthralled by this monolith and they want to go to Devil's Tower, Wyoming, despite the potential nerve gas threat to their life. So they both drive there. They end up running into each other there. They sneak around the guards conducting an evacuation and drive up to the mountain. They end up getting confronted by the scientist and um, the military there. And they're like, hey, you guys need to leave. There's a gas leak. And Roy is like, listen, you're full of shit. I have to go to this mountain. Trust me, the aliens are talking to me. Him and Jillian make a last-ditch attempt effort to escape, and they run up the top of the monolith and end up reaching this temporary base that the military has set up on top of the um, monolith in order to commune with the aliens. And then basically the last 30 minutes of the movie, the sort of like chase scene between them and the government is over. The aliens are arriving and everyone is just enthralled with the arrival of the aliens. And the nice thing about this movie is the whole point of this is just to communicate with the aliens. There's no like malintent or anything like that. They just know that these aliens are coming they think they're going to try and communicate using this musical tone that they have like signaled to the earth. Mm -hmm. So they try and communicate and the ending in the movie is kind of abstract, Uh, but basically they're able to communicate with the aliens. The aliens like land this giant mothership and they deliver a bunch of missing people from, you know, world war two era or random locations around the world that people have been abducted they just deliver them back to Earth completely unharmed and not aged at all. Right. Um, and then the final part of the movie, the humans, the Earth, you know, the military presents a bunch of astronauts along with Roy, and they say, like, you know, here are our people if you want to take someone with you to your civilization. Like, the, the implied action is that you can study us voluntarily. Like we'll give Mm -hmm. you a person. Yeah. And as a quid pro quo, the aliens send one of their own to earth. And so Roy ends up getting chosen by the aliens to go onto the ship. The aliens send one of theirs to go to earth. And then the movie ends. So that's right. That is close encounters of the third kind. I think that that was pretty much everything, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think you really encompassed like a lot of the good science that we're going to talk about. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was so thick with science that like I had to really just slather it in there. Yeah. 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 It was just like drenched in science, to be honest. Mm. It was sopping with science. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm, Sopping wet science. Yeah. It had a real soggy bottom. Yeah. It had a a real (sighs) nasty, soggy bottom. I I would say it was grossly soaked in science. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Filled Ugh, spilt filled to the brim with science. Hey Kenan, do we have any drenched. science we want to talk about in the movie? No, we don't. Uh, oh. Hey, we, there's some. There's a there's a wee bit. All right, yeah, Pace, I should I should you tell me. I should have asked Pace. Mm, you should have. Well, I think one of the first things that stuck out to me is the general effect of the alien technology on the way that electronic things work on earth mm-hmm. or yeah work because because you have with barry and his little toys his remote control cars moving of their own accord the vacuum turning on and moving of its own accord the stove the fridge all behaving rather strangely uh you also have 
uh, Roy's car, which ends up being right below one of the UFOs and begins behaving very strangely with the radio and even the the, the engine, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the RPMs were fluctuating constantly. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, also like, but also along that same vein, there is a uh, a railroad crossing sign that is actively <laughs> swinging back and forth. That as well. Like that's there's yes. a lot of mechanical motion. Uh, a lot of mechanical motion, and in, in, in addition to the electrical uh, stimulation I, that's happening, I can't think about any sort of rationale for the mechanical uh, aspects of it. I can think about maybe one for the electric, but it, it's it's kind of in the opposite direction to which you would you would think it would happen because you can you can uh, so electricity is made possible by the, by the formation of circuits, mm-hmm. um, and so certain frequencies of radio waves can disrupt those circuits. Um, This is called electromagnetic interference. But the problem is that electromagnetic interference doesn't cause remote control cars to turn on and and move of their own accord in certain directions, it would cause things to stop working. It would it, it would affect circuits from working properly. Not it wouldn't it wouldn't induce wild, unpredictable um, uh, activity in regards to the electrical de- devices. Or that's the way I interpret it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's more. I mean, honestly, for the purposes of this movie, it's very much like weird, strange things are being activated. Like none of the lights in the house turn on. You know, like. It's just right. like the toys. Also, yeah, it, there's you, no logic to it. Right. If you start to think like, oh, it's electromagnetic, the fucking fridge door opens and all the food is everywhere. And like that food is of not. Of course, that makes no sense. Yeah, yes. of course. Uh-huh. Like that food's not. Listen, magnetic. I'm trying, Sean. All right. I'm doing my best. Well, I will Listen. say, I think the implication for that scene maybe is that one of the aliens came inside. I think we're dealing with a real sign situation here where the alien came oh, in and science. he was trying out some Coca-Cola, maybe some almond milk, a couple oranges, things like that. Yeah. You're right. That is yeah. a good point. Mm-hmm. That is a good point because yep. Barry does like look to the camera and smile, sort of like implying like the alien That's is standing true. over there. Mm-hmm. He does. And then we see the dog flap yes. going flippity flap, right? True. And then Mel Gibson comes in mm-hmm. and yep. takes his baseball bat yep. and well, breaks glasses of water with it. And you the mean alien Bruce dies Willis? And the movie ends. It's not Bruce Willis in Science. It's Mel Gibson, isn't it? This conversation is saying right now. This conversation is upsetting me for a lot of different reasons. So we should move away from both of you (laughs) attempting to remember Science. It's definitely Bruce Willis. No, it's definitely Mel Gibson, and we're going to move on. And we're talking about how this electrical charge affected everything around him. Is it really oh, Mel Gibson? Yes, yeah, it is. You Gibson. you go to IMDb, and I'm going to talk a little bit about gravitation. Oh my god, right. it is Mel Gibson. Thank you, Kenan. So the only thing that I could think of, possibly, thinking of the Sixth Sense. <laughs> yeah, you fucking are. Uh, about about the uh, mechanical motion that we see and the electrical motion that we see, if that somehow both of them are related to the aliens' methods of propulsion. Um, so one can assume that they are somehow like flying around using some sort of means. They're tumbling around a whole lot, so that kind of implies that their spaceships are not using, like, directional force in order to stay afloat and to move around. So we can only assume that it's some sort of, like, gravitational manipulation is, like, really the only way uh, that these bad boys would be able to stay off of the planet's surface. Um, okay. Right? So right. Does, that, does this make sense so far? It's a lot of hand-waving, but that's what we do on this podcast. Yeah, I mean, that's I guess true. it makes sense if you're just going to make shit up. But Listen, sure. I'm just trying to <laughs> I'm just trying to give Mr. Spielberg a little bit of room to move on the dumb bullshit he put in this movie. 
Next, you're going to be telling me that Bruce Willis wasn't in Signs. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> I, you should not be trusted. So the only uh, thing that I could think of is that potentially whatever method that they're using to propel their ship uh, is causing both of these interferences, either like through electromagnetic forces, uh, allowing all of the um, electrical devices around them to be disrupted, and then also just a bunch of shit to move in general. So as this ship gets closer and closer to our boy Roy, he sees all of this bullshit around him moving, including mailboxes, yes. his car, the railroad crossing yes. sign, or what have you. Oh, and the 50 maps he has in his car. Yeah, I don't know about all this shit. I mean, you know, like I said, I can only do so much hand-waving on the part of Mr. Spielberg, so. I Honestly, the, one of the main things that stood out to me watching this movie was that I realized how different the world is now <laughs> than it was in the 70s. <laughs> like, seeing him in his car... Just like getting cell phone uh, phone calls to his house on a corded phone with just yeah. like fifty maps in his car looking for directions. I yeah. was like, "Yeah, this is wild." Yeah, could you imagine? Like, I, if Old someone stuff was like, is "So lame." If someone was like, "Hey, your phone's broken. Can you drive across states?" I'd be like, "Where do I even fucking find a map? I don't, you know, <laughs> I, I don't mean, know where to find a map." The answer, I, I could probably, probably do that. But you know, you could find a map at a gas station and then after, come on, Sean. I know where I can find maps. Get you it. didn't know that Bruce Willis Get wasn't it. in science. <laughs> I don't trust you to know anything. You're just going to walk point. into a gas station. Hey, do you have any maps? They had, they're, never mind. Anyway, the point is, <laughs> I believe I exactly know where you're going with this because I can't even fathom the idea of being lost in 2020 anywhere, no matter where I am. Yeah. Right. I Fair also enough. can't imagine following directions besides someone just going like, turn left, turn right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Like, I don't know uh, the route that I took afterwards. millennials. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, okay. I think we can we can move past this if you guys are cool with that. That's fine with me. Um, Did you have another one? All right. I think I've got one that's cropping up in, on the old brain. Uh, that I can all right. Well, why don't you go? Why don't you go ahead since I just did one? So there's this uh, this bit at the end of the movie where uh, the all of the people who are missing, I guess, for some reason... The aliens came to Earth and only took Americans, specifically from the American military. So that was pretty interesting. I guess it's good they landed in America. Uh, but uh, he, one of the people walks out, and one of the scientists turns to someone else and goes, Wow, Einstein was right. Talking about the fact that the guy who comes off the alien spaceship didn't age at all. Um, Sean, can you tell us what the fuck this man was talking about? Oh, I'd love to. <laughs> Um, Wake up. Oh, I guess he's talking about the uh, um, effect of, you know, <laughs> gravity on your age. <laughs> do you mean Do you mean the theory of relativity? No, 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 no. That's no. right, Sean. I think Sean. it's gravity. That's right, Sean. He was talking about the theory of special relativity. Oh, yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> Guys, I told you I'm tired. You can't ask me this shit out of nowhere. So we talked about this a little bit on our uh, Interstellar uh, episode, but basically what this person is talking about is the the effect of time dilation. So the fact that these aliens have been zipping around the universe, doing their ding-dang, stealing people off the planet thing, these people would have uh, appeared to age more slowly because the fact that they are moving extremely fast causes time for them to move at a different rate than it does for a person who's not in motion. This is, again, this idea of time dilation. So if you take a clock and you put it on something that's moving very, 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 very quickly, and then you're holding a clock and you're not moving at all, when that clock finally that's moving fast finally comes back to you, the time will be different and not as much time will have passed. God, physics is wild. Yeah, I guess these aliens have just been like zipping around like real fast. So... Yeah, I guess so. It's Special relativity is pretty bonkers. And if you want to feel... 
very stupid, you should look up the basic rules for special relativity because outside the bounds of mathematical physics, they make no goddamn sense. Do you think that it would require ludicrous speed? I think... I'm going to say yes. I'm also going to say... I think this is the 13th time you've referenced that on this podcast. (laughs) I don't think that's true. Which I can't fault you for, because I think Sean has said my wife like 50 times. (laughs) Luna. (laughs) Spaceballs is dumb. Okay. Thank you for that, Kenan. I think think for the last sort of science-related topic that we can cover is the communication methodology Mm, that is used... Uh, by the aliens and thus us in an effort to to uh, reciprocate said messages, mm-hmm. uh, and that is uh, music. They use music, or at least we'll call them uh, tones. Yeah, you know, patterns of tones. So, I think that what I'm sure our listeners are are dying to to get their to sink their their big old teeth in is whether or not if aliens do happen to make contact with planet earth if the likelihood of music being used as a form of communication Mm -hmm. do you guys have any initial thoughts on that my inclination is that the ability to communicate with tones that are within our hearing frequency spectrum Mm -hmm. would likely only be the case if the aliens also had some form of communication within that same frequency spectrum so like in movies where aliens communicate telepathically, they might not have evolved to be able to hear at the frequencies that we hear at. Yeah, that's so a good point. Yep. there yep. might not be an intrinsic communication like at that level. Um, but if the aliens communicate with any form of sound, then it's possible that you know we would have some overlapping ranges that we could hear in. So, Sean, uh, since you're uh, an expert eurologist what um what allows human beings to hear in the specific range of frequencies that we hear in like why are we limited to a specific range so basically okay sound is compressed uh air basically that's vibrating things mm-hmm. um so if you're in like a vacuum right there's no sound because there's no molecules in the air vibrating um So basically when you hear something that sounds really low or something that sounds really high, uh, that is the, like the organ in your ear, the cochlea, the cells in your ear that are responsible for detecting the sound signal are vibrating at those frequencies. So like if a high pitched Mm. sound hits your ear, it vibrates a membrane in your cochlea at that frequency. And that stimulates a certain group of cells. Mm Mm-hmm. If a lower pitch sound hits your ear, it vibrates at that frequency and that stimulates a different group of cells. And, that, and then your brain is able to interpret the different uh, cells that are telling it what sound is coming in. So basically, we're limited by the uh, range of vibrations that membrane can accomplish in response to sound. And along with that, what those cells are actually able to interpret from that vibration. Right. So basically, like, the way the membrane in your ear vibrates is based on the frequency. So, like, it vibrates the... Uh, okay, I'm trying to figure out how to do this. Well, so at low There's frequency, certain... it's like a, it's like a, the wave of that vibration is is longer, right? Like, yes, like exactly. Think, right? So we're thinking about wavelength here. Then that means that the pattern of up and down or back and forth that that membrane is doing, like a drum, 
is is a longer version. It's like it's deeper because it's moving not more slowly, but in like a wider arc. Right. So like some areas of the membrane will be like, quote, you know, up and the other areas will be down at that frequency. And then Mm -hmm. when you change the frequency, the wave gets faster. So where the peaks and troughs of your wave are, are going to move along the membrane. So for our listening audience, if you want to think about frequencies and wavelengths, you can think about this like in the sense of, say, a rubber band. So if you take a rubber band, you hold it from, you know, two edges of it stationary and then you pull on it and let it taut, that's going to vibrate at a specific frequency. And since it forms these like arcs as you're doing it, the smaller that rubber band or the smaller those individual arcs running along that rubber band are, the higher that frequency. So to make this easier is if you had a giant ass rubber band and you pulled it taut and let it go, those arcs in that vibration would be huge. So the frequency would be lower. So the sound would be lower. Right, exactly. So, and that is how we hear. So there is an upper limit and a lower limit, but really an upper limit to the frequencies we are capable of hearing as Mm -hmm. humans. Cause our ears are just not organized in a way at which they can respond to high frequency hearing. So, that's why when people say, if you've ever blown like a dog whistle and you see a dog freaking out, it's because dogs can hear at higher frequencies than humans can. So also when you get older, you lose your high frequency hearing loss. So kids can hear higher frequencies than adults can. Mm-hmm. So You could also say that, that given the variability that even exists within earth creatures of potential frequencies of sound, they can actually interpret it would be pretty wild if aliens that grew up in a completely different environment under different conditions also just by chance were able to also interpret those same yeah. sound frequencies. I would just say that it's basically not as like universally guaranteed as it sort of seems like, Oh yeah, just play a sound like they can hear that sound too. Um, but the aliens in this movie do have like humanoid resemblance. Like they have, they do. They have like yes. mouths and eyeballs and like st- stand like people on two feet. So like if they have a mouth, it might just be for eating, but they might also be able to make sounds with it, you know, mm-hmm. and like sure. maybe the sounds are in a certain range. Like the sounds we can make with our mouths are like a product of the shape of our vocal cords and everything and like the, yes. the anatomy of our mouth. So like that's why we yes. can't make high frequency noises. So if the alien's physiolo- physiology is similar to our physiology enough, then that would make sense. But yeah, you know, okay. that's just dependent I, on the aliens. So so let's say, just given the chance, that we happen to be in alignment with aliens in regards to the frequencies of sounds that we can uh, that we can receive. I think the other thing that I thought about here is that we had the I guess we'll call them scientists who were like interpreting the sounds as they were coming from the mothership, right? Mm-hmm. And they were talking about them in terms of like the musical scale, mm-hmm. like they say like five, three, one, mm-hmm. etc. Yeah. Right. But I don't think that even the idea of a musical scale is is consistent across even different like cultures in humanity, let alone some universal, literally universal across the universe, like like a uh, 12 point chromatic scale in, in music. Like that's something that would be specific what? to, to earth. Yeah. Right? So I'm, and I'm well, and I think like, so half in credit of what Sean is saying and half in credit of the movie. Um, if you're creating tones, theoretically, like they're receiving those in the form of 
frequencies within like sound waves, right? So if they yes. have a way to pick yes. up sound at all, uh, even if it's not for themselves, but it's like their ship is able to pick up any sort of sound, right? So we have to assume that these aliens can hear and, and they navigate at all by hearing, right? Then they may be able to pick up these individual tones and then you could code information that way. But the only thing that we have are these five, the the five basic things that have been introduced by this movie here. So it's not like we're, we're starting with any complex language and the only information that's being shared are those five different vibrational frequencies. So it's not like we have anything complex, but I think the only reason right, right. What, what I would view this through the lens of is the fact that according to everything else that we're given in this movie, those five tones were transmitted to Earth first. True. And so True. when humans were able to mimic them, that viewing it from the perspective of the aliens versus what we would normally be looking at it through, which is our perspective, that told the aliens that we were able to interpret that sound and at least play it back. And at least in that range of frequencies. Right. At, at, like, right. at, yeah. at, at a minimum. So that's and a good point. I think also what you're getting at, Pace, is like the the context of like tonal patterns are going to be like very culturally dependent on yeah, Earth. Right. Yes. But the concept of like these are different tones is more based on, again, like the anatomy of a human ear. So like there sure. are tones between like A and B on the musical scale, but when you get too specific, people have a hard time differentiating the between A or B sure. because the, the changes in frequency are like too subtle for the human ear to be able to recognize. Um, and that's not like across the board, but that's just like, that's going to happen to some extent, right? You can't like, yes. if you go from like, you know, 6,000 hertz to 6,001 hertz, you can't tell the difference between that. No. Um, so it might just be that, you know, the aliens just picked a range. We were able to send it back to them. So they were like, okay, they're picking up that there's differences between these things, yeah. you know, and they are sending it back to us. What we're honestly better off doing uh, as, as a species, but also, you know, aliens as well, is doing what we're trying to do right now, which is send frequency variations in the electromagnetic spectrum. So we're talking about uh, much like light, things like ionizing radiation, like you've heard of gamma rays and things like that. These are very, very, very high frequency things. Again, not sound waves, but electromagnetic waves that we can use to communicate. The best one being radio waves, or at least what we know, you know, what humans use the most for communication. These things we can actively broadcast into the universe with the expectation that at some point somebody will pick them up and return them. For example, the uh, Arecibo Telescope in Puerto Rico uh, sent a message out into the stars in 1974 uh, in the form of a radio message with the following information. Numbers 1 to 10, atomic numbers of some basic elements, hydrogen, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, uh, and also uh, the uh, information needed to make up DNA, showing that we understand DNA. Formulas for sugars, bases, uh, a graphical figure of a human, of the solar system, and of the Arecibo radio uh, telescope itself. All of this was sent via radio waves okay and in binary so binary being the numerical language of either zeros and uh, or ones an on or off signal so our best bet using this type of logic is that the aliens will be able to pick up basically either a yes or a no how the fuck they arrange that into words they would have to interpret binary the same way 
But the idea being that like zero and one on or off is the base level way of communicating. Wow. That is yeah, that makes sense. What if there's an alien like like you and me who like is just sitting there with our fucking ham radio and pick it up and we're like, yeah, wow, yeah. this is a lot of lot of gobbledygook. Don't know what this means. So the <laughs> like, worst worst part about this is is that the uh, the information was transmitted in the direction of the globular cluster M13, uh, which is about twenty one thousand light years away. Uh, so uh, from nineteen seventy four, uh, it will take about forty two thousand years for that to reach back to us. Perfect. So. Assuming they can immediately transmit it back. We're well on our way. <laughs> yeah. Good. I hope Earth's alive. All right. Good, 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 Do good. Do we good. feel like that was that was enough science for this, this fucking movie? I think it was more than sufficient. Yeah. That was good. I think it's time that we rate this bad boy. <laughs> that was way higher pitched than I was expecting from you, Pace. Holy shit. My, I don't know what's been happening recently. I think I've just been talking more, or I don't know, but my voice has just been starting to crack hey, and go away. Pace. I think I'm going through puberty number two. You're, becoming, you're a just man. becoming a man. Yeah, you're just growing up. No, but I've been a man. I've had the deepest voice in the podcast for the last two and a half years. Pretty soon, everybody poops. Yeah, okay? everybody poops. Pretty soon All you'll right, be noticing uh, hair sprouting in places where it wasn't before. Um, I already have that. You'll have a hard time uh, okay. moving your right. arms and legs without running into things. Um, Pace, yeah. have you started liking girls? I'm sure you've noticed girls recently. <laughs> uh, I can't do this with you guys right now. Oh, okay. I guess we'll just rate the movie then. I like a dude. Oh, we could just do that. <laughs> wait, sure. wait, just the do the show? Shot. All right, fine. <laughs> um, Who wants to go first? Uh, me. I'll do this. Good. Thank God. Yeah, I fucking got you. All right. Do we do science or entertainment first? I don't remember. What, it's, it's your science. call, dude. Do it. All right. This is my, this is my oyster. I'm going to eat it. Uh, so for science... Uh, I'm going to give this a one out of five. There's not much science in here. There's a little bit. It's just there's not anything in it. It's not good. Uh, as far as entertainment goes, I'm going to give this. I'm going to give this a three out of five, I guess. Like I, the only parts I like about this movie, I like because I understand the references to this movie. And I'm have a hard time. I have a hard time ex- extricating my enjoyment of the film just because I know what's happening in the film because I've seen the film before. But otherwise, it doesn't mm-hmm. do much for me. So it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like eating. Uh, it's kind of like eating plain yogurt. Like you know, it's pretty good for you, but it's just not really that great. Like there's nothing amazing about it. Yeah, like you're getting your poops are gonna get right, but otherwise, there's not much else going on. You and Jamie Lee Curtis are gonna have amazing poops. Oh, Jamie Lee Curtis and I, dude, she has the best. Poops. We text each other about her dumps all the time. Uh, okay, yeah. okay, okay. While you're we on said, the toilet texting one. We mm-hmm. referred to poops too many times in the last sentence. We have to stop That's now. probably true. Dumps? Sean, you go oh, next. I said All we right. have to stop. I said we have to stop. Well, then you, you talk about your dumps. Oh, my God. All right. I'm going to give the science rating a one out of five for all the reasons Kenan said. There's not science in the movie, really. Um, I'm going to give the entertainment. Like, okay, I'm going to give a qualifier. If you have a time machine, you can go back to the 70s. It's a five out of five. <laughs> but if you're watching it in 2020, it's like a three out of five. Because it, it's really just like a lot of these older movies have really slow plot development and like abstract things at the end, which are cool, but also kind of like a letdown, it feels like to some point like i liked the concepts that there wasn't a violent interaction with the aliens it was just like we're just trying to communicate and that was it there was no like gung-ho military person like fucking blast these aliens straight back to hell or something which was nice but (laughs) welcome to earth 
Yeah, welcome to Earth, motherfuckers. Like, no, fuck off. So it was yes. nice that the, there wasn't that vibe, but it's just, it's, a, it's slow, man. It's like two and a half hours long, and there's a lot of, like, not much happening. So mm-hmm. I three out of five. Pace? Pace? Cool. Yeah, I mean, I'm also going to give... I, sh- I would say I give the, <clears throat> excuse me, the science probably a th- three out of 10. And that's mostly not for, um, not due to the quantity or not even really for the quality, but. Just <laughs> because um, you wanted for, to say three out of 10. <laughs> I wanted to say three. Well, I think that in regards to the, I think that I could tell that there was some effort put into trying to formulate the idea that sound and music could be used as language. Um they weren't just sort of plain shit randomly. There did appear to be some sort of effort that went into the terminology and, and ways in which they spoke about it in the film right. that that might have been somewhat realistic, but I think naive in the context of of talking to aliens. So that's where I stand on that. And then for the entertainment, I don't know. Um, a two to three out of five, a five out of ten. It it's it was okay. It was fine. It was a 1977 film that was probably better at that time, but now it's just fine. Is that, and that's it. Yeah, I've noticed a theme with a lot of these, like, classic films that we do is that, like, they're classic in the context of the time period when they came out. And, like, when you watch them now, it's not like they're bad. They're just, like, not as impactful. You know, you're like, okay, sure, that's a movie. Yeah, (laughs) I I really liked your qualifier of... Yeah, if you watch this movie through the standards of 30 to 40 years ago, it's a good movie, which is not it's not a vote of confidence. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not like the point is it's not like the acting's bad. It's not like the script is bad. It's just like there's just not that much development because at the time, I feel no. like like it's the same thing with 2001 that we just watched. Like it's not about developing the plot and like thick character development it's just about like thick. these really abstract concepts being conveyed in unique ways like cinemagraphically no, it's just I, like i totally get it i'm gonna i'm gonna sum it up for you why eat bread when there's pizza i fucking get it exactly yeah, yeah. right and cheese and sauce yeah those are all in pizza okay and you- why eat pizza when you can answer listener questions yeah hey! listener questions are the bagel bites of our world wait what do oh, we do I for bagel bites what do we do for <laughs> listener questions um well, listener questions where we i don't have anything Kim. <laughs> <laughs> i have nothing that was all right good. Pace, i'll do the jingle for you i'll do the jingle yeah for you. that you have the bones of something here sean you take it away go we can't just steal Tim Allen's thunder. That's the same jingle. That's every jingle that we do. We can't keep doing the same thing. All right, here we go. Let's try. Let me try another one. Without Tim the Toolman Taylor in it, I'll do another one. Questions? God damn it! We do have some listener questions, and I I can't I can't. Are you good with that take something? Are you good with that take? Run it back another yeah. number 35. I think that's fine. I think it's perfect. Okay. You think 34 was the winner? 34 is it. I think that I don't even know what, you're, what, what we're talking All about. Take right. 34 anymore. where we did the Tim Allen grunt. Jerry, Jerry, All right. cut it, print it. Good. Click, click. What's that first question, okay. baby? Marker. What's that first question? Marker, blank. Yeah, Pace, um, quit stalling. Come on. We have to do the fucking our show. Our first question comes from DN DeGraw at Abnormal Mormon on Twitter. Friend of the podcast. Thank you for your question. What is the biggest obstacle 
to establishing and making contact with life on other planets? And what do you think the odds would be of that going well for humanity? Oh, nice. He sent a similar question yes. into our Instagram. Thank you for both of those, Mormon. Mormon? Fuck. I, I definitely know. <laughs> Just call him Mormon. I mean, okay, his it's he's abnormal Mormon on fucking Instagram, so I just read it. <laughs> oh, nice. Um, I'm pretty sure the biggest obstacle would be finding aliens <laughs> first. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I think also, I think distance, right? Like, we talked about that a little bit, like, getting it somewhere far enough outside of our solar system where we think there's habitable life is a huge fucking deal. Like we could send a message out right now, but that doesn't mean we're going to hear back from them in any sort of banner, like any sort of time. Right. Yeah. We haven't invented a warp drive yet. Right. Yeah. I was also going to mention distance. I think distance is, is, is the key because I mean the, the nearest galaxy is gosh, how many light years away? I I forgot already. That's a great, that's a great question. it's not close. But what do you think the odds would be of this going well for humanity? Hmm. That's the true question. So let's say we find them. I think, like, okay, so if we're talking about like in our lifetime, we aliens receive our signal and then contact us, that would mean that they are significantly more technologically advanced than we are. Because if we sent a signal out that should not reach them for 21,000 years, Mm -hmm. but they are able to receive it and then come contact us. That indicates that they have technologies beyond our comprehension. Agreed. Yeah. That's, that's Um, the best possible scenario. Yeah. And so if that's the case, I don't think it would necessarily go badly because they probably have completely different intentions and like considerations about what they do with their lives. Um, I don't think it would go bad. I just, they might not be interested in us. I don't know. Like we are interested because we are at a stage where we are like, um, I don't know. Contemplating the universe. Like think contemplating about like other things existing out there. But if they have the technology to move across the universe at like vastly faster rates and right. look at different things, they might not care as much because this might be old news to them, you know? Yeah, the, the other thing, too, and I just thought about this, barring a completely different technology, but assuming that Einstein's theory of special relativity uh, holds fast in all, forgive the shitty joke, but reference points, they would also have to commit a group of, of their people coming to Earth, traveling at light speed, leaving their entire family behind to age and die as they come to Earth. So, like, there's that's another thing to consider. And also something that I just thought about for the context of all science fiction. Like Star Wars, for instance. These motherfuckers are flying around at light speed. Everyone around them would be dying constantly all the time because they're going so far away and flying so fast. Fuck. Everyone would just be dead. No one would be able to get anywhere. Oh, God. Kenan, Kenan, Kenan. It's okay. It's all right, Kenan. We're never going to invent interstellar travel. It's never going to happen. Fuck. Nope. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Nope. Probably not. Anyway, I hope that answers thanks your question. Thanks for the question, Mormon. <laughs> yeah, so thanks for the question. I guess Kenan's curled up in the fetal position on the ground right now. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, he's lost. Oh, God. Wait. Someone help Existential him. Existential crisis. Wait, I have, a, I have a question. There's someone actually... Oh, okay. So, uh, again, thank you for the question, Mormon. Uh, but we have another yeah, question on Instagram as well. So, uh, Kelly McArdle, that's Kelly E. McArdle E., uh, commented, uh, I've only ever heard of canaries being used to detect gas. Would pigeons actually react similarly? Does this apply to all birds? And if so, what is it about their tiny, weak, little burby bodies that makes them depart from this life when gas is afoot? Or should I say, mm, a talon? Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. That was... Uh, 
<laughs> it was so bad, but it also made me laugh. So mm, thanks for the question. Yeah. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks, Kelly. Appreciate it. So what she's referencing, uh, of course, are when Roy and um, Jillian. Jillian, thank you, Sean, plot man, uh, are driving around and they think they're driving into gas. Uh, they bring two pigeons with them to help them verify whether or not there's actually poison gas around them. So the pigeons would presumably die before they did. Right. right. And the reason birds are used for this is because birds are just much more sensitive to like volatile toxins and it's because their lungs are extremely different than our lungs. Mm-hmm. And they have, I guess, just like a higher absorption into their bloodstream from shit that they inhale into their lungs. Because uh, birds actually have like a four-chambered lung. Unlike mammals, which have like these two lobes of a lung, birds have like different chambers that the air flows through. So traditionally, birds are more susceptible to, you know, inhaling toxins, um, which is why they're used for this. And also, consequently, if you have a pet bird, it's a really, really huge pain in the ass to do surgery on it because um, anesthetizing a bird with, like, gas is really, really hard. Um, Also, like, they're small, so you can't... It's really hard to find a vein. So there's a lot of, like, tricky things with trying to do surgery on like your african gray or something like that yeah a lot of it like sean said has to do with their uh size like the amount of plasticity that they have in their lungs healing from different exposures to uh, exposures to different chemicals is far 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 lower so like canaries are using coal using coal mines because they're small have a high metabolism and a rapid breathing rate. So the like the minute they get a whiff of carbon monoxide, they're going to go down because the amount of carbon monoxide that it takes to kill a very quickly breathing tiny bird is way lower than it is for a human being. Yep. But this also can apply to other things that are actually harmful to humans, but they're not harmful enough to cause lasting damage, like essential oils. So you can actually take uh, like a lot of candles and um, uh, incense, and if you bird, burn them in a house with birds, uh, smaller birds, it will kill them uh, because those essential oils and some of the other things that are burned as part of those things are more detrimental to those animals' health than they are to our big-ass bodies. Ken, and birds do have a four-chambered lung, right? I didn't make that shit up, did I? Uh, I actually don't know. You you hit me with some <laughs> I shit. I think they do, Sean. Shit that I didn't know. But the I thought that they did, but now I'm now I'm scared that I. I mean, no, they do. Yeah. Uh, yes, that's correct, Sean. Nailed cool. it. Yeah. Yeah, they got cool. like yeah, 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 yeah. They have these air sacs. Yeah, they're different. There's not four of them, right. but they're like you know, there's four sections. These birds there's are a bunch just of different. They're sections. just full of sacks. They're just chock full of little air sacs. They're full they of sacks. Perfect. Thank you very much for the question, Kelly. Thanks, Kelly. I think we can we can move on to a question. We we had um friend of the show, Sarah Eisenlor, sent in some some questions um, a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, and I think we can move on to what her last question is, which I think we should be able to answer. Let's do it. Shockingly, uh, we all know about Punnett squares, but my biology teacher always refused to explain why hair, eye, and skin color vary so widely. Please elaborate. So, oh, I think, yeah, I mean, the first thing we can say that <laughs> the reason your biology didn't, didn't <laughs> answer you is because they didn't fucking know, because they probably don't <laughs> didn't have to know that much to teach you this in class. Wow! It's not required. <laughs> wow! It's not, it's not required. Shots fired. You know that PhDs by, teach high school, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, Jeez. some of them do. Yeah. 
Some of them, but usually, hey, can your biology teacher, Kristen Wig, probably doesn't know anything about this. I can tell you 100%. Can favor and cut this from the episode? No, we can't, Kenan, because my biology teacher also was the woman's track coach. Uh, and definitely didn't have a PhD and definitely didn't know the answer to this question. Okay, that's fair. But I just want, yeah. I just also want to preclude that your biology teacher could have been very good at running and very good at biology. And biology. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, but probably not. Probably not. Should we actually answer the question? Yeah, of course. The, okay. Okay. So the, the reason why is because a Punnett square is a heavily simplified version of genetics, and that being. A Punnett square is demonstrating how a monogenic trait might determine what's known as phenotype mm-hmm. or a, 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 the, the manifesting result of that gene uh, in play or how it might look like. Um, whereas, and, and that's only the vast minority of actual genes. Uh, whereas the majority are actually driven by what are called as, or are known as polygenic traits, or they're driven by more than one gene. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's just, imagine like, I don't know, 20 Punnett squares that all lead to the same thing, like height or or weight. It's just more complicated than than, than one gene and the alleles associated with that. Right. Yeah. Basically your hair and eye color is not, there's not a hair color gene. It's just, it's a bunch of different factors that determine your hair color. It just can't be decided by a Punnett square because a Punnett square applies to one gene only. Right. Exactly. And it's one gene displaying a certain type of inheritance pattern, which is not always the case. Right. Yeah. Punnett squares can can describe uh, like they were saying, like very basic genetic traits. So there's a whole slew of plant colors that you can describe by Punnett square because they're either heterozygous or homozygous. So you have two copies or only one copy out of two of a specific gene. Or like even, I'm sure our listeners at some point have heard that scientists work on fruit flies. Uh, a lot of early genetics was done on fruit flies because there are some fruit fly genetics that actually follow a Punnett square, thereby making the genetics easier to understand and work on. Yeah. And there are definitely human genetics that do follow Punnett square it's Mm -hmm. just not all of the ones that people use as examples because they're too they aren't relatable right so yeah it's usually somebody's like well what about your ability to play soccer like that's one gene yeah right but they're like oh my dad's (laughs) tall so like yeah yeah did i get that from him and you're like yes there are genetic factors contributing to your height but there's not a height gene you know like like if you I mean, height by definition, like if you like lost your foot in an accident, you would be shorter. You know, that's not even a genetic thing. That's an environmental factor. So like it's there's a lot of shit that can contribute to that. So that's why your teacher didn't do that. Or according to Pace, they might just suck at their job. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Listen, I guarantee you it's not in like standard curriculum for what biology teachers have to know for high school as to like genetics beyond beyond the Punnett square. I wouldn't be surprised. It, hey, I'm just, um, that's all that I'm saying. I just want to say, I love teachers. They're yeah, just so underappreciated. If you are. want to tweet at pace, my mom's his... a teacher. Okay. But it doesn't mean that you have to know about polygenic traits to teach high school biology. Hey, Listen, if Pace's you, mom, if, hey, I just want you... to apologize on behalf yeah, of Pace sorry, from, our, from our podcast. Sarah, I, yeah. Thank you so much for liking the post on Instagram. Not many people do that, and I just really appreciate your, your commitment. <laughs> yeah, we, and with your son, and he's just he's kind of a handful. Sometimes I totally get it. He's a handful. Um, but yeah, thank you for your support. We love him so much, but he's very mean. I'm sorry for being so fired. <laughs> I don't I don't mean it. It's all right. You're a Leo. It's okay. It's, that's, your, that's a character you play on the podcast. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Do we got more questions? Should we go to the next question? 
Yeah, I've got <laughs> yeah. one. I got one. Let's, I got a question that see. I can read Ooh. for you guys if you want. All right, lay it on us. Why don't you both read it at the same time? That doesn't seem helpful. Well, also, I haven't okay. told Pace what question I'm going to read, so it'll just be a real <laughs> that'll shit be, show. That'll be a real trick if Pace does <laughs> I that. I can try to guess it as you're saying it. All right, cool. So I'm going to answer a question by uh, our badass listener, Bartholomew Hoffman. He's the, he's, the, he's the real science druid. He heals us through all of his actions, and he asks us questions every now and then. Bart was also responsible for some pretty sweet statistics that you can look up at uh, realsciencecast.com. Uh, so Bart asks, are there serious neurological disorders like schizophrenia that can actually be cured rather than managed? Uh, and I assume this is um, coming in on the back of some of our gene therapy related questions and answers that we've had recently. Sean, do you want oh, to feel probably this one? Based on, yeah, probably also based on A Beautiful Mind, which we watched a few yeah. months ago. That's a good point. Thank you for your question, Bart. Yeah, thanks for the question. Yeah, thanks, Bart. Um, so currently... I don't know of any like severe mental health diseases like that, which people would label as a curative measure unless they are caused by some sort of like mass or something in your brain that you can just that can be surgically removed. Everything else, I feel like if it's a chemical imbalance in some way. I don't know of any diseases where you can just cure them with some medication. I think they're just treated with therapy and medication pace do you have any knowledge on this i know you're our resident neurosurgeon on the podcast i am i have my hands in all your brains um so i think that so i think that sean mostly it's first i could tell give a pretty good concise answer to the question the problem is that you're right and that all the treatments that we have for neurological diseases are they're not what we call disease modifying therapies they're all just managing symptoms right um, and the problem behind that is is that we don't know how the brain works. It actually it's you can simplify it in that way. We just we just don't know the the foundational aspects of of the biology of the brain in order to to cure the diseases or to know what causes them. Um, and so we, for example, that's why for a lot of things like schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, all we do are are throw medications at people that that affect neurotransmitters and and the balance of them that we've talked about before. And while this can maybe help symptoms, it sometimes it just presents new ones. So you're not curing the disease, you're just you're just changing the symptoms that are presenting. So that's why this is so tricky. Yeah, and I think the other thing to keep in mind too that, you know, um, in regards to disease treatment uh, versus disorder treatment when we're looking at uh, neurologi- neurological afflictions, right? So, like, schizophrenia is regarded as a mental, mental illness, so a neurological disorder, uh, whereas things like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, for which people are doing uh, lots of other research to try and cure or abate the symptoms of, including gene therapy, are neurological diseases. So, as Pace was saying, that's an example of something that has a direct correlation that is a disease state that is causing that disease. So instead of it being uh, mediated through a series of chemical signals, you have something that is happening to the brain in regards to extra proteins being there, or proteins not behaving the way that they're supposed to, that is affecting the brain in a detrimental way, that is often progressive, that we can actually throw things at to try and abate. Yes. Yeah, it's really really all about, do we know the underlying cause? If so that we can try and develop a therapy for it. If not, then we just have to treat the symptoms. Yep. And for most mental health illnesses, we don't know the underlying like biological cause. 
I, I think something else important to point out is that to, sometimes in order to cure a disease, you don't know, you don't ha- have to necessarily have to know everything about what causes it. Yeah. You just have to know a critical step in what's called like the, the etiology or the, or the progression of the disease that, that you can interfere mm-hmm. with. So, for example, we know like certain changes that happen in the brain with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. So we focus on stopping those changes even though we might not know further downstream which causes every single symptom. Right. But if we can prevent those from happening in the first place by stopping step A, you don't have to worry about stopping step B, C, D, et cetera, because you want to stop it initially and catch it early. So that's what a lot of treatments focus on as well. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. That was a good question. Bart said us a couple more, but we are running out of time to answer questions from people. So thank you to everyone who sent in questions. We will answer the uh, whatever remaining questions we have later on in future shows, or maybe we'll save them for mailbag episodes. Who knows? If you want to get a question in to the Real Science Cast, um, you can contact us at realsciencecast at gmail.com, at realsciencecast on Twitter, or at realsciencecast on Instagram. Or you can go over to her Facebook. This is lovingly curated by our very own Sean Crossan, who does not have an internet presence. So that's the only way that you can talk to him. <laughs> that is true. I need to make some posts. I've been kind of slacking recently. But guys, it's sometimes being a postdoc is, is tough. <laughs> if you were so. a postdoc, we'd see more activity on Facebook. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> uh, uh, post Because you're a post doc. Yeah, that's the joke. Uh, it's, oh, right. well, oh, because we'll, we'll I post yeah. <laughs> on. <laughs> all right, moments passed. Moments okay. passed. Got it. No, I uh, got it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think we should do the honors of letting Sean announce our next movie. Um, Sean, remember, if it's a space movie, I have to die. So choose wisely. Um, Kenan. It's not a space movie. Oh, thank God. Uh, next episode, we are going to be doing Weird Science. Yeah! Uh, that was a suggestion by, I believe, Kelly McArdle, friend of the show. Mm-hmm. I believe so. Um, and I also want to thank our pat- patron, Jenny Crossan, for suggesting Close Encounters of the Third Time. Third kind. Fuck. <laughs> we love the movie. It was fantastic. Kenan is joking about jumping off a cliff because of space movies. I Listen, Jenny, I enjoyed watching it. I did not enjoy talking about it. Hey, it's okay. Jen, Jen didn't have to talk about it. But Jenny, thank you for being a patron and supporting mm-hmm. us. And yes, thank you for your movie suggestion. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, and if you would like to support the show just like Jenny does, you can go over to patreon.com and find Real Science Cast. We're on there. We have a couple of tiers of support. I think the first one is $2. And if you pledge $2 a month, you can write us an email with three movie suggestions and we will pick from those, sh- shove them to the front of the line and cover those first. Uh, also... Uh, I believe we have some Patreon-exclusive content that's potentially coming out. Yes, it's recorded. It will be uploaded by the time this episode airs. So if you're a patron, um, you can get one of our bonus episodes off Patreon. We've recorded two, and one of them has been edited and uploaded for you guys. Hell yeah. That good good. This is that secret good good that all you cool people get. It's basically us interviewing each other uh, about our choices in uh our science careers and talking about why we made the decisions we did but in the context of a late night talk show yeah and it gets very <laughs> steamy and very personal very so personal steamy. you so get personal. all the hot deets about your yeah. three science boys those hot deet meets That's right hey is this all of this episode so we can all go to sleep yeah oh please tell me i this. think it is fucking hell I yeah think we're good well in that case i'm ken smith i am sean crossan 
And I am Michael Pace. And remember, you don't need good science to make a good movie. At least it's in tune, though. Why don't we just uh, yes and each other, you know? Okay. That always goes really well. usually goes very well. So I'll tell half a joke, Sean will tell a funny joke, and then Pace will kill both of them. (laughs) That's the real (laughs) science cast. Yeah, that's usually how that goes. All right. (laughs) Welcome to the party.